Well, hello, everybody. Great to see you. And more and more of you here in the class. I was thrilled to see that email that shows that our seating is going to be back to quasi-normal soon, so that uh, gives us good reason to have a lot, of, a lot more people back. <clears throat> well, thanks for your prayers this past week um, and all your cards and calls and emails and attempts at food, which were great. By that, I mean we didn't need you to send any, so thanks for all that. But I don't know, many of you probably know, but I had my gallbladder taken out this week. What a great experience that was. And I mean that. It, uh, I got some, I, I had considered being back here last Sunday because my doctor told me, really, it's probably not going to be a big deal. And then after, my, uh, after I shared with some of you last time that I'm, I'm having my gallbladder taken out, I got some fearful <laughs> warnings. And so I thought, well, I better err on caution, and, and so I'm grateful that Rome was able to step in last week. But honestly, literally the next day after my surgery, I was back in the office working. It was no big deal, and I felt great, and I still feel, feel great. So uh, I'm grateful for good doctors and a good nurse with my wife, and uh, also for a week off last week. So th- but again, thanks for your prayers and all your, your gracious, gracious connection with me through the week. Think about somebody who's been a hero in your life. Uh, Probably for many of us, that's pretty easy. Someone immediately comes to mind. Maybe it's a parent or a teacher or a coach or somebody, a pastor, somebody who has really been a hero to you. You kind of got that person in mind? I want to bet that that individual is somebody who has a personality of grace. Because for the most part, the people that we think about in our lives who have not the personality of grace, typically we don't think of them as heroes. We, uh, we, think we kind of put them in a different category altogether. And I think that's because we're built that way. We are built to be drawn to people who are gracious. And we tend to look up to those who are merciful and have a personality of just kindness. And that's by design because that's how our God is. I think our God has been blackballed a lot of times by people when we think about our Lord as one who is just ready to drop the hammer. Now, if we had parents who were that way, it's tough to sort of pull out of that mold and to view our Heavenly Father in any other capacity. But the reality is our Heavenly Father defaults to grace. And we see this all throughout the Scriptures, and if we're honest, we see it in our lives as well, that our God has not treated us as our sins deserve. Um, If He did, then we'd all be gone. We'd all be dead immediately. But the reality is God is immensely gracious and immensely patient with us throughout our lives. He has defaulted to grace. And one of the reasons that he is, apart from that's just his character, is the fact that very few people are motivated by intimidation. Intimidation does work, and as parents we all know, or I should say as children of parents we all know, that uh, when it comes to it, we're motivated by fear. 
you know, whatever the threat was from our parents or from the history that we experienced from punishment. And the same with work. Think about that. You're motivated to do a good job at work because if you don't, you'll get canned. But the reality is that's not our greatest motivation. Fear motivates, but it's not our greatest motivation and it's not our ideal motivation. Our ideal motivation is grace, that we are drawn to somebody or to something because we have a passion for it and a compassion for it. And God knows that, and he designs it that way. Turn with me to the book of Romans. We are in a series that goes through a single message from each of the 66 books of the Bible. And today we're going to take a dip in the wonderful ocean of the book of Romans. Romans, you know, all these New Testament books are this way. Every book of the Bible is this way. I mean, who came up with this dumb idea for a series of just one message from every book of the Bible? Because once you get, once you open the book, this has been a hard week going through Romans. It's been a wonderful week, but it's been a hard week. I literally, up until a few days ago, considered doing a totally different message in Romans because Romans is like trying to pick um, one jelly bean out of the jar. You know, if you were to pick one jelly bean out of the jar, what color would it be? Just holler it out. What? what? Black, red, purple. Purple? Okay. Any others? Blue? Blue. Are there blue jelly beans? Oh, well, as far as I'm concerned, there are only black jelly beans. Black jelly beans. See, you have a love-hate relationship with your particular flavor. I mean, black jelly beans are the best. Now, the irony is I hate licorice, but I love black jelly beans. And trying to choose just one jelly bean out of the jar can be hard for some people. But uh, anyway, so I've, I've selected four of the best jelly beans, you might say, from the Book of Romans. And we're going to walk through some of these. And I admit, your color may be left in the jar as we go through Romans because uh, it's just difficult to, to pick the right one. But let's start with Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Romans 2, 4 is where we'll start, and we'll, we'll land in four different places, and by way of application, we're going to ask four different questions that only you can answer. These are questions that, I guess, you know, if you know the person next to you, they could answer for you, but the reality is you want to answer these for yourself. Romans chapter 2, let's begin in verse 4 and just read a couple of verses. Paul asks, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Think about God's kindness in your life. <clears throat> um, we see a great example of this in another part of the Bible. You don't have to turn there. You're probably familiar with it. But it's the story of Jesus healing that lame man at the pools of Bethesda. If you go to Jerusalem today, just inside Stephen's Gate or Lion's Gate, there's a church called St. Anne's Church, and right beside St. Anne's Church is this, these deep pits 
that were the pools of Bethesda. And this is where Jesus healed a lame man. Um, you remember the story is that the lame man said that he couldn't be fast enough to get to the water when the, the spirit or this angel stirred the water that, that whoever was the first one in got healed. Well, the story, uh, the legend of that is probably bogus, which is why in that particular episode of uh, John, that whole section is in brackets that explains it. There's some scribe explaining the whole thing. But bottom line is Jesus healed the man. And then Jesus later finds the man in the temple, which is when you're there, you realize it was, the temple is just right across the street. Jesus finds the man in the temple, and, and Jesus asks him. Let's see, I wrote it down. This is in John 5.14. He says, Jesus says, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, we figure out from that verse that the man was thus sick because something because of his sin. We don't know the details, but Jesus is saying, look, God's healed you, now quit sinning. In other words, God went first in the grace and healed him, not because he had repented, but just because Jesus was merciful. And then Jesus uses his mercy as a motivation to get this guy to quit sinning. The Apostle Paul here in Romans 2 is saying, this is how God operates. God goes first with the grace, and then he uses his grace as a motivation for us to live lives of holiness. He says, do you think lightly, in verse 4, of, of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Think about that in your life. The grace and kindness of God, the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience in your life has been an, an amazing motivation, or it should be an amazing motivation for us to live lives of repentance. And then he says in verse 5, but a stubborn and unrepentant heart is just storing up wrath. Now, he's speaking here in general terms to humanity. We know in the big swath of Romans, Romans 1 and 2, he is showing why uh, everyone is worthy of condemnation. But he is also saying here, uh, for those of us who have been affected by the kindness of God's grace, that it leads us to repentance. And even with, uh, in Romans 2, the idea of salvation, that he is gracious to us prior to our coming to faith. And we often recognize that in hindsight. But here's a question that only you can answer, and it's the first of four. This first question is this. How has God's kindness toward you been a motivation to love and obey God? How has God's kindness toward you been a motivation to love and obey God? These early chapters of Romans, uh, Paul labors very methodically, and he goes through and basically just knocks down every category of person. Are you a godless person? You're condemned. Are you a religious person? You're condemned. Are you a moral person? You're condemned. I mean, everybody, no matter where you are, apart from God, is condemned. And Paul says, Paul basically says, in addition to basic things that God has given us, like food and clothing and shelter, he has also blessed you with forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He, is, he was not obligated to forgive our sin. He was only obligated to judge our sin. And yet in his grace, he went far beyond 
simple judgment and put the judgment on his son Jesus to where now we can be forgiven. And the wonderful thing as Romans goes on, here, now, now we start dropping jelly beans all over the place. We can't pick them all up. But uh, not only has God given us the motivation by his grace to obey, but he's also given us the resources to do so. And if we were to take the time to go through Romans chapters 6 through 8, which is the other black jelly bean that we almost talked about today, we would see the wonderful resources that God's given us to, uh, to live a life of faithfulness. Romans 6 is that wonderful chapter that talks about uh, how we do not have to sin, that because we are identified with Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, positionally, legally, we died on the cross when we place our faith in him. This is like what Paul said in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. And that is really true. All the sin and the wrath that God had for you and your sin and the sins that you still yet to commit were placed on Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. And in a very real sense, you died on the cross with Jesus Christ. But not only that, when Jesus was raised from the dead, you were raised with Christ from the dead as well. And so now, you know, sin, when sin tells you to sin, you don't have to sin. If you, if you do it, it's because you choose to do it, not because you have to do it. There's no longer anyone making you do it. And so you are free from that obligation to sin. Great truth. But problem, Romans chapter 7, we still sin. What I want to do, I don't do, Paul says. What I don't want to do is what I do, Paul says. So in the same way that we couldn't save ourselves initially, the book of Romans says we needed the grace of God to help us, we can't live the Christian life ourselves. This is the point of Romans 7. We need God's help. Hence, Romans 8, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in in Romans chapter 8 and, and gives us the power to do what we could not do on our own. And how do we access that power? It's all what we think about. The mind that's set on the, uh, the Holy Spirit is life. So, dropping jelly beans, I realize it as we run through, but let's turn to Romans chapter 8, and let's look at the next section by which we will get a question. The very last verse of Romans chapter 8 gives us a wonderful truth of which we're familiar with. Actually, the last two verses. Paul writes in Romans 8, 38, he says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing created, nothing whether it's demons or angels or things past, things present, you name it, anything that's created, and that includes everything, no, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Oh, and by the way, that includes you. You can't separate you from the love of God in Christ. You can't lose by your works what you gained by God's grace. You are secure. In fact, Romans 8, oh, oh, it's so tempting. We've got to pick this jelly bean up. Look back at verse 29. If you have ever struggled with the security of your salvation, you need to look at these verses very carefully. Romans 8, 29, look at the details. 
Paul writes, were those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Pause right there. That God predestined people. He pre- if you have believed in Jesus Christ, it wasn't just you making that decision. That was a decision that God had made before you were even born, before the foundation of the world. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, now look at verse 30. And these same people whom he predestined, he also called. In other words, the gospel went out to you. And these same people whom he called, he also justified. Ah, now they're saved. And these same people whom he justified, look at that, he also glorified. Past tense, and yet it hasn't even happened. It's as good as done, Paul says. Those whom he predestined are as good as glorified. Even though all these other steps come in between, somehow we're involved in that process of believing. So you can't lose it if you've got it. And if you have believed in Jesus Christ, then you've got it. That's how you know that you were predestined. I know it's a head scratcher. In fact, let's, let's, let's pick up a couple of these jelly beans as we move on to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We won't read it, but if you scan down through it, you might be familiar with the context of it and the content of it. Um, there, we, what we did read there at the end of Romans 8, right before we get into 9, is the great confidence that we have. Paul says, I'm convinced, I'm confident that nothing is going to be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now, some thinking person might raise a hand and say, yeah, Paul, but what about Israel? Because uh, God made promises to Israel, Israel rejected Christ, and uh, so hasn't God rejected them? In Romans 9 through 11, Paul methodically labors to show that God has not rejected Israel. And we better hope God has not rejected Israel, because where does that leave us Gentiles if we blow it? It doesn't put us in a good place. But the good news is, Romans 9 through 11 is going to show God has not rejected Israel, which is good news, which means he will not reject us. In Romans 9, Paul uses several examples. If you just kind of scan down through, you'll see the examples of Isaac, of Jacob and Esau, of Pharaoh. These are examples of God's sovereignty that God chose that God chose in his sovereign sovereignty, his predestining of people, that uh, some will be saved and others will not receive that salvation. It is a head-scratching doctrine, and yet it is there without apology in the Bible. And yet we get to the very next chapter, chapter 10, that says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Wait a minute. Are we saved because we're predestined, or are we saved because we call on the name of the Lord? Yes. How does that work together? I don't know. But Romans 9 and 10 are right together. It's not like you've got God's predestination off in the Old Testament hidden in some passage, and then, oh, we've got to choose Jesus Christ here in the New Testament off in some passage to where you know, putting them together is tough. No, Paul puts them right together. Romans 9, God chooses. Romans 10, we choose God. 
And we are not held accountable. Here's the good news. We are not held accountable to understand that truth. We are held accountable to to believe it. We are not held accountable to understand how it works together. But we are held accountable to believe in Jesus Christ. And we can understand that. It's kind of like, you know, our our dogs don't understand how our cars work. They just understand when the door opens, they hop in and the window comes down and they get air in their face and we go down the road. They don't understand how auto mechanics work, but they understand that it works. They are incapable of understanding it. In the same way we are incapable of understanding, at least at this point, God's sovereignty and man's free will. That doesn't mean that one day we can't figure it out once God reveals it to us. It just means that we aren't able to understand how, but we are able to understand that it works. And it's revealed here in the scripture for that very purpose. And then Romans 11. Now turn there, if you would, to Romans 11, very first couple of verses. And in our mind's eye, we're going to travel from where we were there in Jerusalem to, uh, to Rome, the, the recipients of this letter. Romans chapter 11, look at verse 1. Paul writes, I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then he goes on to prove it by quoting uh, some scripture about Elijah and giving some examples. I love this truth because, again, in context, this is saying if God has not rejected his people Israel, God has not rejected the Gentiles, who, the church either, those who have believed in Jesus Christ in this present age. Um, I love going to Rome because there are a couple of sites there that are significant for um, just pondering. Uh, one, of course, is the Colosseum. When you think about Rome, you typically think about the Colosseum. And uh, kind of a, a, a lesser site, but it's right by the Colosseum, is the arch called the Arch of Titus. It's not the big one right by the Colosseum. That's the Arch of Constantine. The next one is sort of up the street a little bit, the Arch of Titus. And you've probably seen pictures of it. It's underneath the arch. You see the Roman soldiers carrying off the menorah from the Jerusalem temple. The Arch of Titus and the Colosseum were built from the money that was taken from the destruction of Jerusalem. So whenever you see the Colosseum, that was built from Jerusalem money. All of the treasures that were taken during that time were the Colosseum and the Arch of Titus. The Arch of Titus was, hey, we conquered Judea. We conquered anybody that rebels against us. And so in in one sense, the Colosseum and the Arch of Titus sort of represent the failure of Israel to follow, to accept their Messiah, because it was the failure to accept Jesus that he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. And it was this destruction of Jerusalem that funded these great buildings in, uh, in Rome. But also, by the Arch of Titus today, there is a, a full-grown olive tree standing right there beside it. And I love that because that takes us to Romans 11. You've got the Arch of Titus that represents the failure of God's people, and you've got the olive tree right beside it that represents the promise of God. Look at Romans 11, verse 17. 
Paul writes, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. Now look down at verse 25. Paul writes, I don't want you to be, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul's point here in Romans 9 through 11 and using the olive tree that represents Israel and Gentiles, we Gentiles are grafted into the promises of Israel. His point is simply this, that God's promise to Israel stands, therefore, good news, his promise to us stands as well that we can't lose by our works what we gained by God's grace. So here's a, a second question, and again, it's one that only you can answer. What personal response or emotion does your security give you? What personal response or emotion does your security give you? Because if you have accepted Jesus, you're secure. You are secure. You cannot lose your salvation. God had a future for Israel, and because that's true, God has a future for us. All right, let's skip a few more jelly bean jars and go to chapter 15. Boy, it's hard to leave, not even say anything about Romans 12, isn't it? Romans 13, that's pretty easy to skip, <laughs> being subject to government. But hey, but look at chapter 15. I remember when I was in my 20s, thinking people in their 50s were really old. Now that I'm in my 50s, I've really changed that whole thought. Because I don't feel any different than when I was in my 20s, just a little slower. Paul was in his 50s. In fact, he was in his early 50s when he wrote this book, the book of Romans. And he wrote it, obviously, to Christians in Rome, but he wrote it from Corinth, which gives you a great insight to the book of Romans. When you think about, especially those early chapters, when Paul is just saying, consider the godless man, and he lists some specific examples of what godlessness looks like or immorality. All Paul had to do was look out the front door there in Corinth, and he had all the examples he needed to put in the book of Romans. But when Paul wrote this, he's early 50s, and uh, by the time he had written it, he, had, he was actually on his third missionary journey. So he had three missionary journeys under his belt. He had many, multiple churches planted. At this point, six books of Scripture written, um, and thousands of people, obviously, in passion for Jesus Christ. Pretty amazing, you know, for a mere guy in his 50s. When I was in my 20s, I thought, well, yeah, of course by then, he's ready to die. You know, he's in his 50s. No, he's still got a long way to go, uh, at least potentially. But if Paul's career had stopped right there, I mean, think about that. Three missionary journeys, churches planted, thousands of people in love with Jesus Christ, six books of Scripture written. Paul, you could just take it easy. But Paul's, Paul wouldn't do that, would he? He was on fire for the Lord. In Romans 15, look down in verse 23. Uh, quite a ways down there. Romans 15, 23, Paul 
had done all he could, and now he was itching to do more. He says, but now with no further place for me in these regions, in other words, he had covered them all, and since I have had for years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. In spite of everything Paul had done, Paul continued to dream of what else he could do. I love these few simple verses. Because here Paul is uh, wintering in Corinth and writing the great book of Romans. I mean, you know, when an author writes a book like the book of Romans, sometimes it's just wise to stop because your next book may not be that great. And that's what people will remember you for. That's not Paul. Paul says, i got great missionary journeys. I still have more to do. I want to come see you, but I'm not just coming to see you. I want to see, go to see you on the way to Spain. Spain was the, the furthest, the most western part of the Roman Empire. It's like this is the end of the earth in the Jewish mind or in the mind of that day. To the ends of the earth, and this was Paul's passion, to take the gospel all the way to Spain. We don't know if he ever made it. A lot of traditions say he probably did, but we don't have anything firm. Don't know why he wouldn't have. There is time in the life of Paul to have done it. But the fact is, he had a passion to do it. And this is the third question that only you can answer. Do you have a purpose bigger than your own life? Do you have a purpose bigger than your own life? Think about what Paul wrote to Titus, by the way, after he wrote Romans. In Titus 2, he says older women are to teach the younger women to walk with Christ. In 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy to pass along to others, to faithful men who will be, who will be faithful to pass it along to others who are faithful. That, that we have a reason that we're still alive, and that is that God has given us uh, a mission or a great commission to make disciples by leading them to Christ and then these people by encouraging them along in their walk with Christ. So are you doing that? You don't have to nod. You don't have to answer me. It's just a question that only you can answer. Do you have a purpose in your life that's bigger than you? And I ask that about myself as well. It is so easy to get in our ruts and to be comfortable with where we are. Paul didn't do that, and Paul is a great model for us here. He had done a lot, but he didn't get to the point and say, you know what, I think I'm kind of done. I'm kind of retired from the ministry. We never retire from the ministry. You can retire from a vocation. You can change a season of life, but you never retire from the ministry. You need a purpose that's bigger than you, and so do I. Paul is a great model for that. And not only does he give us uh, is our purpose bigger than our lives, but it's also bigger than our abilities. It's as big as our God. Look at Paul's request in verse 30, down in verse 30. He says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God, and find refreshing rest in your company. 
We won't turn there, but if you look in the book of Acts, the end of the book of Acts is the answer to this prayer. That God, that God did answer this prayer, and uh, in Acts, I think it's what is it? Acts twenty-three, verse sixteen. Uh, Paul's nephew overheard a plot against Paul, and went and told Paul. Somehow, we didn't even know Paul had a nephew until this. Until Acts twenty-three, goes and tells Paul, uh, "I heard that they're wanting to kill you," and and through that, Paul is delivered. So the answer to prayers comes in surprising ways. But um, to be sure, Paul did come to Rome. And, but when he wrote this, on his third missionary journey, he had no idea that he would go to Rome as a prisoner. So that's sort of an interesting twist on God giving you a passion and then God bringing that passion about. God may give you a passion, but uh, he may not bring it about the way you think it's going to happen. It may happen a different way. It may happen in a way you never would have chosen, just like Paul probably never would have chosen to go to Rome as a prisoner. He went to Rome uh, in manacles. So, all right, now one more stop, and that's in chapter 16. Chapter 16. Now we leave Rome and go to the place where Paul wrote uh, the book of Romans, and that is Corinth, at least in our mind's eye, because... We're going to read something here that happened in Corinth or um, that originated there. Uh, here in chapter 16, which is the end of Paul's, uh, you could argue, his most theological letter, you have a whole chapter devoted to people, to names, to nobodies from our perspective, and yet Paul knew everyone. Look at Romans 16. Uh, look down at verse 23. We're skipping a lot, but we'll come back to you in just a second. Romans 16:23. we read, Gaius, host to me until the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother, and, then, and he goes on. Now, that seems like no big deal. But Erastus, Erastus' name was found in Corinth, chiseled on the ground. We don't know if it's the same guy, but it probably is the same guy. He's referred to as the city treasurer, and the, uh, the, the inscription that's found there refers to, his, to Erastus in his, I think the word is idolship. It's like a, it's an official position there in the city. So it could be the same guy, probably was the same guy. But I like that because, uh, I mean, Erastus was a real person, and there's archaeological evidence of an Erastus there in Corinth. But the point is not that uh, we can point to Erastus and point to the chiseling. The point is that, that he's mentioned here by name. Also, back up and look in verse 3 at a few of these other people who are mentioned by name. Paul says, Greet Prisca and Aquila. This is Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet, look at this big name. Eponidas, my, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles who were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. It goes on. And to each of these people, it's not just say hi to them, but there is a commendation given to them whether they're fellow workers, whether they're beloved, whether they're approved in Christ. Paul 
gives a commendation right along with their name. And this, though it seems subtle, is a wonderful model. Because to us, these are nobodies. I mean, we know Priscilla and Aquila, great. But most of these other names, we don't know them. We wouldn't know Erastus if if his name hadn't been chiseled. He wouldn't be a big deal, at least in our minds. But to Paul, all of them were big deals. He commends them. And I like this because we can be so busy with projects, with uh, accomplishing things, that we forget people. And not only people, but commending people and giving affirmation to them. Now, I asked you up front to think about a hero. I don't know if your hero is still alive or not. And if they're not, maybe you could think of somebody else. But think about one person who has inspired you or encouraged you. Have you ever told them that? They would love to hear that. Here's a question, the final question that only you can answer. How could you affirm or encourage that person this week? This week, how could you encourage them in some way? Remember years ago, I, uh, it sort of crossed my mind. I don't know that I'd ever thanked my dad for putting me through college. So I thought, well, I'm going write to him, write him a note and thank him for that. So I started the note, and I thought, you know what? I could also mention this other thing that he did. I, I could probably have mentioned this other thing he did. So I thought, wait a minute. I'm going to think about every single thing I could thank my dad for. And this was a long letter. It took a couple of hours to write this. And I basically just said, thanks for this, thanks for this, thanks for this. It was that short and, and I don't want to say terse, but it was very short. But it was a whole list of things that my dad had done. And so I mailed it to him. Later, when he got it, he said, I felt like a hero when I read that. And I was glad he did. But you know what? That was pretty easy. That was pretty, it just took a little time and a little honest thinking. We have that power in our hands or in our pens. And today, with texts and emails, it's even easier. That was back in the day we actually had to write a letter. But we could do that, couldn't we? The effects of encouragement are amazing. Only two things last forever, the Word of God and the people of God. Paul could have been so task-oriented, writing the Word of God, that he left out the people of God, but he didn't. He ends his most theological book with a whole chapter on 27 names that for us mean nothing except the great model of his affirmation of these personal relationships. We need to do that very same thing. So we've asked four questions as we've gone through the, the candy store here of the Book of Romans, and I'll ask them again. And uh, I'll, I urge you to just choose one. You know, it's easy to, I guess, write all four down and figure out, you know, all right, great, I'll do that. But just choose one and really do it. Here they are. How has God's kindness toward you been a motivation to love and obey God? Second, what personal response or emotion does your security give you? Third, do you have a purpose bigger than your own life? And then finally, how could you affirm or encourage someone this week? So, Book of Romans, boy, we could take, I don't know, another 20 minutes here. It's not even noon. And go through another jelly bean, but... 
uh, but we'll stop. What a great book. Uh, so let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for giving Paul the inspiration, and, and in a literal sense, we mean inspiration, to write the book of Romans. That winter there in Corinth, as you inspired him to write to the Christians in Rome, we are the ultimate beneficiaries of the wisdom that you've given to Paul. And as Peter said in his letter, one of his letters, he said that our brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, writes some things that are difficult to understand. And we've seen some of those things. It is difficult, if not impossible, to wrap our heads around sovereignty and free will. And yet, you've revealed it. And Father, even though we cannot understand it, we can believe it. And we can worship you because you are a God that is beyond comprehension. Lord, we're grateful to you that you default to grace, that you were the initiator in this whole salvation thing, that you brought about and sent Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who came to seek and to save those who were lost. Thank you that we are part of that flock that he has come to seek. And Lord, we ask for any who are here today who do not have the confidence of where they would stand or where they would be if they were to die today, that you would open their heart to the grace that is given them, that is extended to them, that all of their sins, all of their reasons for condemnation are forgiven when they believe in Jesus, who died and rose again. Thank you for the great truths that we see in this book that not only show us how we can be saved, but how we can walk a life of faithfulness, a life of victory, a life of repentance, even as Christians, for the hope that you give us that's coming, the wonderful truth of the redemption of our bodies. For the future of Israel, this book points to, and how it not only gives a great promise and fulfillment of Israel, but also affirms and undergirds the promises that you've given us of our security. Thank you that your sovereignty extends beyond our salvation to even government, as we see in Romans, uh, Romans 13, of how your sovereignty extends to the future. We're grateful to you, Father, for the blessing of being able to be together today, of opening a book that is so vast like the ocean and just taking a few little ladles out and examining these wonderful truths. And as we choose one of these questions to apply this week or even today, I pray that it would be more than simply a box that's checked, that it might become more of a habit of our lives to ponder these truths, that we would have a, a purpose that goes bigger than ourselves, like the Apostle Paul, and that you would see us as faithful and fruitful in your mission until you come, until you send the Lord Jesus. We're grateful for his gift, and we pray in his name. Amen.